start recording. This is, hi Keith, this is The Rocket. This is the first chapter in the uh, book. Um, so I'm just going to read it to you. Dayton had worked 72 hours already that week and his partner, Kathy, was almost pretty and in the Detroit wastewater treatment plant, better known as Glitter City, this meant she was being tutored in relative comfort across the street. He didn't feel perturbed. This was the largest plant of its kind in the world. It ran by Glitter City rules. The chosen, almost always female and close to pretty, prospered. The rest caught shit. Working on the floor above the incinerators, he pulled the occasional rag off the front of the plows and went up and down the line, adjusting the various plows that fed into the incinerators, then sat down and did homework, drank coffee, and periodically stuck his nose down near the floor near the crack in the floor to get a small whiff of air wafting up from the lower floors. Raheem, four floors below in the basement around the corner from the bottom hopper, was getting plenty of air but had decided to be very still. He had been caught sleeping when Stackhouse woke up and found him sleeping. Stack immediately called on the phone and woke up the operator in the control room and told him to find Headman. This wasn't hard because Head was sleeping in the corner of the control room with his mouth gaped open, gold teeth gleaming in the blue-green lights thrown by the control panels. He stirred and looked at his watch. What's that black fool doing woke at this time? Headman began to initiate the procedure waking up all his contact people so they could wake up everyone else. Slowly he worked his way downstairs to where Stackhouse stood before the sleeping Raheem. Anybody caught sleeping is going home, Stackhouse said. He carefully lit a cigarette, still staring at the sleeping Raheem. I've warned him before. Warned him? Everybody's been warned? Shit, Stack. Two years ago I was standing right here waking you up. Hell. Betty had to wake me up so I could come down here and listen to you tell me to wake him up. Look, why don't I just wake him up and cuss him out a little bit? He's been working 16 hours every day. Hell, he gotta sleep sometime. Besides, who's gonna watch the belts down here if we send him home? All that stuff from the past is gonna change. I'm running this shift and ain't nobody sleeping. You've been warned too. If he's sleepy, he should have stayed home and slept. Now, how the hell he gonna stay home? Stack, when we all doing mandatory overtime? That ain't my problem, is it? Wake him up and get him off the clock. Raheem reclined calmly in his white chair with his white suit on and watched scented petals of pale roses fall, then suddenly turn black and smelly while the room became grungy and his clothes stained. He heard voices and cracked his eyes and saw Stack talking to Headman. He did not move, never moved quickly, only slowly. Slow people are not guilty. The guilty, the Glitter City motto being, if you talk slow and move slow, you probably ain't doing nothing wrong. He listened to Stackhouse tell Headman, okay, how about this? He's on the clock long as he's sleeping. When he wakes up, send him home. Stack turned and walked away chuckling. Head watched him and remembered jail and gang rape and longed for the good old days. He had thought, damn if I'm going to stand here till he wakes up and damn if I'm waking him up.
Well, he spoke out loudly, Raheen, I don't care if you don't wake up or not. Best thing you can do for yourself is stay right here. Fuck it. And walked off. Raheem began to relax. Get up and work and hit men put him on the street. Sleep. And he got paid. Faintly, he began to smell roses. Boxy hardly ever slept because his drug habit kept him on the road. The guards had him spotted, though. As he strolled into the locker room, a guard managed to stroll with him. The only place he could stroll was where the locks were strong or where there were plenty of people to watch the valuables. Boxy sighed. Guess I'm going to have to use the old standby, he thought. Cliff particularly watched Boxy. He was fixated on having everything where he put them. Boxy's presence was antithetical to this proposition. Cliff leaned on a pipe and cleaned his nails with the adjuster. The adjuster was a five-inch blade used to clean out sensors, pry open tops, and clean his nails. It hung by his side in a short leather scabbard and could be whipped out sharp and gleaming to adjust a situation as needed. His nails needed cleaning as Boxy strolled into his area. Hey, Boxy, he said. Boxy jumped, then peered back in the shadows and saw Cliff. Damn, Cliff, why don't you stand where folks can see you? This place is creepy enough without people jumping out on you. I like leaning here, man. Besides, I, I ain't jumped out of nowhere. I'm just cleaning my nails. Boxy looked at the large knife as Cliff skillfully pulled its edge along the inside of his nails. Cliff, I don't mind you cleaning your nails, but why is your nails dirty every time I seem to come through here? Cliff had a great boyish smile, which was really disconcerting when he was cleaning his nails slowly, all the while looking at you. He used the smile now and began slowly walking towards Boxy. You know, Boxy, your nails could use a little cleaning. Cleanliness is next to godliness, you know. Cliff's smile fairly dazzled now. I could fix you right here. You don't even come close to my idea of a manicurist, Cliff. I, 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 I'm really over here looking for City, if you don't mind. City? Oh, man, he was just here. And he didn't want a manicure either. I don't wonder. Boxy mumbled as he moved quickly towards the stairwell. City had found his job for the evening. He had surrounded a pile of ash at Clinkers and was slowly bringing his broom, banjo, and wheelbarrow close to them by increments. This elaborate procedure was necessary because if he actually used the tools on the ash and Clinkers, he would have to figure out what to do with the five hours and fifty minutes of the rest of the shift. Idle hands were not the devil's playground. It was the playground of some brown nose and white hat making points by sticking you in the nastiest job he could find. City hadn't always been a shepherd of tools. When he first arrived, he was the very image of a go-getter. But he soon fell across the first law of Glitter City. Everything in the road gets run down. Work brought more work, and sooner or later, the second law would take effect. Shit happens, and it's corollary. If you're there, then it happens to you. This was scientifically calculated on the Glitter City Punishment Curve, which is an inverted bowl. On one side are total evildoers, rapists, robbers, and conservative Republicans, and on the other, conscientious, hardworking, dedicated, and diligent workers. Exactly in the middle of this curve sat the unworkers. They never did anything, so Glitter City never knew they were there, and as a consequence, they were allowed to go about their business largely 
unmolested. Those at either end of this curve were dealt with harshly, not because they deserved it, but because that was all Glitter City could do. In this regard, the place was entirely biblical. Jesus and thieves are all stuck on the cross together. Those who never did work never screwed up. Those that did screwed up eventually and were brought into Pilate, given the traditional scourging along with assembled pickpockets, heretics, and murderers, then ushered onto whatever wood that was available. The city was particularly was not particularly smart, so the images of the crosses lined across the way were perfect for keeping him in line. Parked safely by the side of the road for the better part of a decade, he was the ever-mindful shepherd. Boxy sidled up and stood near the almost corralled pile. Hey, City, what's up? I got a bet for you. Yes, yeah, City, I got a bet for you, too. Bet I can banjo your ass with this shovel. Boxy, being a stone-cold fiend, was never perturbed by these sorts of greetings. Business needed to be done, and there weren't no use in getting into no hassles on greetings. You sportin', ain't you? I got one for you, for sure. I bet I can slap a sucker, and he not only won't get mad, he'll loan me a buck. Another corollary of the basic rule was that unworkers tend to have a strong need to relieve boredom. If one could broach a startling enough proposition, there was a good chance that someone would pay you money for the entertainment. City's tools were obviously in need of a rest, and a good opportunity for entertainment should at least warrant a hearing. How much and who? Fifty dollars and Jonesy. This was immediately interesting. The crazies and the white hats gave Harold a wide berth. Even Stackhouse, who was both, avoided him like dengue fever. Harold had maybe five good brain cells left operating. He used one to find his car, and another he used to lock and load. No one knew what the other three did, and they didn't want to find out. Harold had re-upped in Nam three times before the Geneva Convention demanded that he either be sent stateside or retired in the Vatican basement with the other instruments of torture. He had been at the Detroit Zoo before he came to Glitter City, and they had used a tranquilizer gun and a net to get him off the premises. Fifty dollars and slapping Jones? Shit. City would pay his whole check for that, but rules are rules. He had to dig her. Dickering was a religious principle in the plant among unworkers. It was an opportunity to waste time, but through the years it had become so much a part of the fabric of the place that the original reason had been lost, but the behavior stayed, which is actually another rule of the plant, but of course no one mentions it because they've all forgotten it. City began. I, I don't know. Me and Jones are pretty cool. How about Cliff? I'll give you a hundred for Cliff. A few minutes ago, the nigga was asking me if I wanted a manicure. Boxy gave City the shithouse look. This is where the one person looks at the other person as if that person had two heads and one of those heads was facing backwards. Shit, City said. You said he wouldn't notice. First of all, it's only going to work on some people. If it worked on everybody, I would have slapped a black off stack a long time ago. As for Cliff, that nigga don't sleep and don't nobody around that machete-wielding motherfucker. He probably lay in bed at night cleaning his nails. No, it's got to be Jones. But, but me and Jones is cool. 
Look, man, put $20 in my hand now, and I just go over there and slap him, okay? You on boxing? Do I get your car if he kills you? How about that rent? Come on, man, ain't nobody going to get killed. Jones worked in rack and grit for two reasons. One, it was a job that required only one person, and he had already proved that working with living creatures was problematic. Two, it was where the money was. Throughout southeastern Michigan, people were losing all sorts of money down toilets. After a good rain had flushed the sewers, money would come riding up the screens like a gift. It therefore became a very popular lunch spot and break area. It wasn't nearly as popular with Jones working there, for the obvious reasons. He sat on the stool, nodding in front of the metal desk in rack and grit. The bar racks and the grit buckets traveled endlessly on their circular routes while the fans droned overhead. Here come that damn boxy, he thought as he watched the two men enter the building. I bet he want me to do that damn thing again. Long as he's stupid enough to give me two dollars for every one he borrow. Hell if I care what he's up to. Then his eyes rolled back up in his head. Next time his eyes rolled out of his head, Boxy and City were standing there smiling. Harold, for once, felt surprisingly alert. Yeah, Harold, can I get a dollar from you? Yeah, 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 said Harold as he slowly rose and dug around in his pocket until he retrieved the dollar. City stood there smiling. Harold glared at him. What you so happy about? City stuck his grin back in his pocket. Nothing, man, I can't. I smile. Not here, man. Go and smile across the street somewhere. I just walked over here with Boxy to kill some time. Something wrong with that? Shit, you ought to be happy we're here because the grit belt is empty. Oh, man, moaned Harold. Damn that grit belt. Every time I turn around this bridge, well, I hate to break this up, but I got to go and don't be messing with nothing. Y'all got jobs. Y'all don't need to be over here looking for money. Shoot, Harold, said Boxy, waving a 20. I already had. I already done found 20. I guess I got my quota. Come on, city. Let's find some way to spend this money. Harold rubbed his jaw. It felt like he was developing a toothache. Man, maybe I need to get to the dentist, he thought. He forgot all about the ache. When he walked down the aisle and looked into the grit bin and saw the screw turning with nothing going in, he got a long ear wand and began to poke it into the grit, blowing it into the grit screw. The grit passed from the screw feeder, then through a series of belts that went over across the street to the bottom hopper, where Raheem reclined with visions of white suits and roses. Harold blew down the grit until he hit a knob of rags. Diligently, he worked the air wand and finally blew them into the screw. They were free now to do the work of destiny. They had met in the sewer a few weeks ago, and their felt destiny and a ball of twine had bound them for glory. The grit bin had left them dried, but they managed to snag temporarily on a trough idler in the bottom hopper. There they drew sustenance and strength as the wet cake slammed and churned them. They grew as the sludge collected on them became heavier, more massive. Then they dashed for the plow of number one incinerator. Plow one is the first plow on the feed belt to the incinerators. It is always closed way down to prevent overloading. Only a truly gargantuan and determined rag 
could catch it and forced tons of sludge to dive into one furnace. They caught. The cake poured relentlessly into the top of incinerator number one, driving down temperatures as it went from hearth to hearth in the incinerator. Dayton, the incinerator feed plow operator, paid no attention to this whatsoever. He had his nose down near the floor, sucking air. Headman began tapping on the control panel. Damn, what's wrong with this thing? He called on a walkie-talkie to Dayton, who was still selfishly sucking air and could not hear the walkie-talkie, whose batteries were low since they had been used had been used forever and didn't take a charge too well. Headman's walkie-talkie took an excellent charge, so everyone within a 1.5-mile radius with a receiver could hear him cursing and fuming, trying to find out what the hell was going on. Granny Goyash had such a receiver. She broke out the chip dip in her little house in Del Rey that sat a few blocks from the plant, then pulled her comforter around her and leaned in close for the show. Easy dozed quietly while Ralph read Das Kapital. The shoes were off and their feet were warming in the open door to the ninth heart of number two incinerator as their backs was being warmed by the heat coming from the door of number one's incinerator ninth hearth. This arrangement ordinarily causes the incinerators to lose heat, but if the burners were on, it wasn't enough to prevent the cake from burning. They were huddled thus because the motors which opened the windows didn't work. This was fine for the winter, but when the temperature outside reached 90 and the incinerator hearths were pouring forth 1400 degrees, Dante would drop in, take out a notepad, and get some of his best stuff. Ralph was the only second floor man that read Marx, but the concept of the dialectic seemed to infect the air just the same. Along with Marx, in the air and 90 degree temperatures were the 20 foot long iron caveman tools used for deslagging breaking loose the large crusted cylinders that attached themselves to the drop holes of the incinerator. A eighth of an inch, an eighth of an inch thick pane of glass and caveman tools were the dialectic of which fresh air was brought into the building. The administration, tired of fighting the dialectics, figured that if the proletariat wanted air, they would have it in abundance. So the window stayed broke, even though the temperature could get below zero. Marx is about continuous change, and the new dialectic was busted windows and cold air blowing off a frozen Detroit river. This resolved itself in the dance macabre. The heat poured out the furnace doors so hot that they could smell the oils from, the, from their skin while the beads of sweat on their backs started to freeze. This meant that, much like a lizard, they had to keep turning around enough either to keep cool or well done. Always careful not to pirouette too close to the ice on the floor near the windows. On a good day, when the wind was low, they would huddle in heavy coats around the ninth hearth and warm themselves by the pale, lucent blue flames dancing above the burning sledge. It's from this heartfelt perspective that Ralph felt the coolness from number one and turned to see black, wet cake dropping onto the ninth hearth. Shit, he said. Oh, shit, shit, shit. Ralph opened the earth hearth and saw blackness and murmured, holy shit. 
It is impossible to know if holy shit said in hell evokes much, but holy shit even murmured and brought easy to full attention. Ralph stared and repeated again, holy shit. Holy shit, easy murmured. Holy shit, headman arrived from the control room curse. Holy shit, Cliff said, freshly back from cleaning his nails and offering manicures. Holy shit, the chorus murmured as they realized that the only people who could avert disaster were all standing on the second floor, too far away to stop what was happening. Stop the shaft, headman yelled out of habit, bellowed into the walkie-talkie. Then he paused and shook his head at his stupidity. Holy shit, Ralph said. Holy shit, Easy said. Holy shit, Cliff said as the shaft ground to a halt. Headman looked at the walkie-talkie. Holy shit, he murmured. George put his head down and headed for trouble. He was an electrical helper, the bottom man on the electrical crew. George knew electricity and machines. He was headed for trouble because he was headed towards his supervisor, who by definition had not a clue. Clueless Curly had the, had the repairman clued some Fred disconnect an electrical box so that they could work on a pump. Clueless had read the blueprints which indicated exactly which box to shut down. Clued some looked at the blueprints and didn't really understand them but knew no one ever put all the changes on it but he knew enough not to cause trouble. George could read blueprints but knew to follow the conduit to see where the wires terminated. He had also worked in operations and knew that the box would shut down the shaft which is why he was headed for trouble. Curly hated George because he was a troublemaker, always pointing things out, always making him look bad. He crinkled his face when he saw George gesturing and waving. You cut off the shaft, said George. Curly looked at the blueprint, looked at the shaft. Hell, they just turned it off for a minute. George went over to the pump that should have been off, hit the button, and it rattled painfully to life. Clueless looked at his blueprint shook his head and turned back to Fred. Reconnector. Fred did and the shaft rumbled to life. George beamed at Curly. Curly beamed at George as he thought of all the things he was going to do to George. George stopped beaming. He remembered the belt interconnects they had installed on the sludge belts going to the incinerator. Curly kept beaming for the obvious reasons. With the disconnects working, when the shaft st stops, the feed stops. This way the incinerator doesn't get stuffed to the gills. George had installed slightly wrong interconnects with slightly wrong wiring to a slightly wrong power supply because he worked for Curly. For Curly, slightly wrong was as close as you were ever going to get to right in this place. Curly, in this case, was slightly wrong. George stepped back from the shaft. Holy shit! Which is what Dayton said when he saw the Godzilla of Ragball sending tons of shit into the top of the incinerator. Which is what Cliff, Easy, Ralph, and Hedman said as the shaft rumbled to life with the little whiffs of smoke that curled above the now hot, baked, and redly ignitable sludge cake. Holy shit! Which is what Dayton said when he tried to stop the belts going to the hopper and the cake continued pouring in. Holy shit.
which is what Raheem thought when the petals blackened and he heard the plop, plop, slap of shit falling and flying in the bottom hopper. Holy shit, which is what George and Curly and Fred said when they heard the loud pop of the shear pin giving on the shaft. Holy shit, which is what City said as the shit began spilling off the belts and sliding down the walls from floor to floor. Holy shit, which is what Hedman said as he slammed the door to the incinerator as it belched black smoke out the doors and then red flames began shooting four, eight, ten feet out of the viewports and peepholes looking for all purposes like a rocket headed for the moon.